Welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. It is now 96 degrees. Check this out. I already got a water restriction notice, two phone calls already, and it's like the second day. And we now, because of COVID, we have a water shortage. And as well, the electric company said, pull back on your air conditioning. So now we're sweltering, dying, can't hang out. And now we can't drink water. We can't even go in our pool and all that. So here we go. Now, <laughs> I was saying this yesterday. How is this possible? We're just getting started in the second hot day. And there, usually it takes about eight days, and then you get the brownout alerts. Con Edison said, if you guys turn on your air conditioning, we're going to have to shut down the city. Uh, that's not a cool thing in New York. And those that know how New York rolls. But anyway, I'm going to bring this woman up. She is absolutely the bomb. I want to welcome <laughs> to our stories, Miss Ultra Tay. Story. She has been gigging again. She's excited. We've been talking off camera. I'm going to leave it like this. Scandals. We rocked. Free we rock. The records are endless. She was in the Studio 54 soundtrack. It just goes on and on, but we're going to take it back. First, I want to ask a major important question. Everybody always asks me and stuff. How have you been handling COVID, Miss Ultra Natalia? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, you know, I've been I've been navigating it as best I can, like everyone else, you know, just kind of rolling with the punches and um, continually working towards, you know, when all of this madness is over. I've been extremely busy, the, like the record business never stopped. Thankfully, um, I did a lot of work in the studio, so the time was used really well. It was great to have like concentrated time where I could do studio work. Um, and then I just, you know, the rest of the time I spent trying to navigate what was really going on in the streets with, you know, the economic issues, racial injustice, social injustice, like so many like bigger, bigger things happening all at one time. It, it really just felt like, you know, this this perfect storm of madness going on between the election and political unrest and and and. Um, you know, the economic disparity with people and, and all of the like hate, hate spinning around, just, you know, so much vitriol everywhere. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty wild. It was not something I want to revisit, but I was definitely taking it one day at a time. And, you know, as always kind of keeping my eyes towards the horizon. Well, I'll say this, you know, in the middle of the whole COVID thing, and as things were getting really bad, George Floyd's situation didn't make it any better. If anything, it added more and more salt to the wounds that were already we were all dealing with. Oh yeah, there is it. It, it was just a twelve alarm blaze everywhere. Oh, God, <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if it's twelve alarm. Let's say two thousand alarms. Probably more like two thousand. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was just I I had become a bit of a political junkie. Um, a few years back, I think, um, during the two previous election cycles, presidential election cycles, I became really addicted to political news and um, getting my head around that and then getting more aware of, you know, who the players in the game were and following the money and following the politics of a lot of people. And, you know, that just added so many extra layers to what was already way, way, way wrong with a lot of things that were going on in the U.S. and have been going on for a minute. So, you know, it, it really got to the point adding something as detrimental as COVID and a whole pandemic where everyone in the world is going through 
this really crazy moment together, um, it just added a layer. Like you just felt really out of body all the time that you were always struggling to just process this and process that. And as soon as you adjust to this, you get another curveball thrown at you. And it's just a constant barrage of stress and, and anxiety. And, you know, as humans, we're not built really to sustain that constantly. You know, we have the fight or flight uh, response to things, you know, when there's trouble and stress in the air, we're not meant to constantly be on 10 with nervousness and agita all the time. So after a year and a half like that got really strained. And I think there's a lot of recovery that needs to happen. Um, you know, I always feel like I'm still dealing with PTSD from the whole thing. And, you know, it's not just simply like the, the virus is being addressed head on and that's a big relief. But there's also the fallout of the emotional and mental and psychological strain that people had to sustain for a year and a half through the through the whole process. And we're not through it yet. That's the scary part. We're not really finished with this yet. No, not finished with it at all. Although, you know, a lot more countries are moving towards, you know, uh, herd immunity and having you know, getting close to 70 percent of their population vaccinated. Um, but, you know, the virus is going to continue to move around as long as you give it some place to go. And um, that's something that we are going to have to reconcile ourselves with and um, to continue to, to navigate through that. Is the African community or should I say, because I'm going to speak from the Hispanic side. I've been seeing some have been pushing back because I'm half Hispanic. Those that know me. Um, I've been seeing them saying, nah, hell no, because of the past things that happened with other vaccines and being kind of like the guinea pigs. Mm -hmm. I've been hearing people say, hell, hell no, I ain't taking that vaccine. Oh, of course. I mean, of course. You know, there's there's many different sides to that story. And, um, you know, people, it's, it's a personal choice, especially at this point, the vaccines are readily available. So if you're not uh, going to get vaccinated, that is a personal choice. You also open yourself up to the risk of whatever COVID might do to you should you come across that. And that's also a roll of the dice. Absolutely. So you, you can say, you know, I don't know what's in this vaccine, but you also don't know what's in the food that you eat most of the time because everything is genetically modified and filled with all kinds of chemicals and half the time it's mystery meat anyway. So, you know, there's there's a lot of variables that we could go with. Um, people also don't understand that this technology that they're using with MNR, um, RNA or whatever it's called, the messenger technology, that's the delivery system for the Moderna vaccine that technology is new technology but we're working with an actual virus that has been being worked on for 15 15 years or more um coronaviruses are not an unknown thing they map the, the genome for the virus way back when and so when this when this version of it came to light. It's not like they were starting at zero. And I think a lot of people kind of miss that information in that they're thinking, well, viruses usually take, you know, anywhere from five to 15 years to come to market. And this happened really super fast. But the difference also from the financial side of things, because people are like, well, the money, the money, the money, the money factor is that you've also never had a circumstance where the whole world is throwing money at the same effort. To, to accomplish the same thing. Most of the vaccines that have gone to market take so long because the money flow isn't there. So that was never impeding the progress on this, as well as starting with a virus that was already known and having newer technology. You, you can't expect that the technology is going to be the same as what we did 
50 years ago. I mean, you also didn't have a, a smartphone in your hand that had the power of a, a massive computer 50 years ago. You didn't even have that, you know, to the same degree 20 years ago. So you can't expect to function in that same um, context anyway. So technology is going to move every industry forward and every process forward. And that's kind of what we're seeing the benefit of also. And of course, there's there's risks to everything. Um, there are going to be people that are going to have adverse reaction there. You know, there are people who would die if they ate a peanut, oh, you know, so th there's going to be someone that's going to have a reaction. But when you look at the ratio to how many millions of people are doing well with it and it is is, is preventing people from becoming deathly ill or dead, you know, that's where the benefit is. And, you you know, you, it's a personal choice. So you have to weigh that. But you do run the risk also by being not vaccinated. And those vaccines, you know, there are stories and there are factual things that have happened that absolutely invoke fear in most people. And it is completely understandable. And that's where there has to be better communication between, the, you know, the scientists, the media, um, the the pharmacy pharmacy um sorry the pharmaceuticals themselves all of all of the the folks in the chain have to be on board and communicating the same thing and making sure that it is trickled down to everyone in in the community and there's been a, a lot of back and forth and kind of all over the place with that with mixed messaging and things like that so that kind of started things out the gate the wrong way so you know it's it's a it's kind of a, a mess at the moment that was not necessarily by any one specific design. I think it was just mismanaged and handled way incorrectly. Um, and and now you you're gonna you're gonna get the, the reap the benefit of that, which is some people are not going to get vaccinated, and we're gonna have to deal with that. Right. And I want to thank our Washington correspondent, Ultra Tafe, on Channel Seven Because I'll tell you something. You've actually and people are writing this. You've actually explained it better. And a lot of people that came on have over the last months of <laughs> doctors explaining it on television. You explained it. I mean, somebody's been watching a lot of news. Well, it's not just watching the news because the news can be very conflicting. I also I also do my own own research through various means. And I also look into all of the conspiracy theories because I'm curious as to how people derive this this answer. Like this is this is where this is how you got there. So I'm interested in all aspects of it. I want to hear everybody's opinion. I want to hear how all of this makes sense. And so I, I do look beyond that. I, I do read the data that's coming from Johns Hopkins. I do have, you know, close communications with people in other countries to get a to get a handle on what's happening in other places in the world because this is a this is a global issue. So you can't just rely on one source. We have to have media literacy, which means you have to be able to properly vet the information that's coming through from different different right. places. Sometimes. And you also have to have a brain to also realize that some of this stuff is kooky and yeah. some real. Like you got to be able to say common sense. And some people have taken it either too far to the right or too far to the left. And you may Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and, and a lot of those things, and again, it, it comes down to communication and the fact that there have been, you know, really bad things that have been done to people, black people in particular, and, and other, uh, you know, marginalized communities. That's, that is a fact. 
And so there, there is a basis for people to have that fear. You know, I, I never uh, was one to get flu vac- vaccination every year. It's just something that I just did. I didn't do. Um, I've flown around the world for the last 30 some years. And for the last 20 some odd years, I've worn a mask on every plane ride. And that's long before anything like this came into being. So when, you know, mandatory mask wearing, I'm like, and what? Like, that's what you do. You know what I mean? For me, it's it's very matter of factly because I got sick one time from one person sneezing on an airplane next to me, and my trip to Miami at that point was a wreck. And just the, and you know, I'm a little bit of a germaphobe too. So just the fact that like those cooties were floating in the air, and I was like, mm, yeah, no, I won't be doing that again. And I've worn a mask ever since then, and I and I've never been sick since then from traveling. So you know, I, I get it, and but. On the other side of that coin is like when you're looking at vaccines, the totality of it. I also know that I don't have to worry about rubella. I don't have to worry about diphtheria. I don't have to worry about smallpox or polio because those those diseases were and conditions were eradicated through vaccination. And I happen to actually remember because of all of this hullabaloo in politics. I actually remember people from my younger childhood days who had um afflictions and issues that I didn't realize were caused by polio until I had a conversation with my mother recently. Um, very good friends of ours. Like, you know, one had an issue. She, as long as I had known her, she had had a limp, like a, a leg length discrepancy. I never knew that that was caused by her having polio when she was a child. Another friend of ours who was a deaf, deaf mute and I never knew that he was not born that way. I always assumed he was born that way. He be, he got polio when he was a child and and that's what happened. So in my lifetime, I actually know people who were afflicted by that disease. And that really kind of brought it home in a, in a very um, close way that I was like, hmm, you know, when you really think about it, like you don't think about these things being an issue anymore. And, and you don't because in those cases, the process worked. And so, you know, it's it's our responsibility to to make sure that we're we as global citizens are doing what we need to do. And on a personal level, you know, over the last year and a half, I've lost quite a few friends and colleagues um, to COVID. And and a lot of times people that are so vehement about no, 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 this is this, it's, it's a mess, it's that, it's that, it's all these things, maybe they haven't lost anyone or or many people around in their sphere. Um, and, and that's a blessing, you know. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people out there that have lost numerous people in their family, in their friend groups, and people that they work with, um, people that they just generally know. And I know at one point for a long time, just going on, on my social networks like Facebook or wherever, it was like reading the obituaries after a while. Every time I would open up my app, someone was in the hospital, going on a ventilator or had passed. And, you know, it just became really, really frightening. And I I felt like, you know, like it was like the Hunger Games and you're just waiting for, you know, the next name to go up in the sky. That's a really scary process. Yeah. You know, I wasn't trying to live in that kind of world. And I wanted I wanted my life back also. So I'm like, as soon as this vaccination is right and ready. Wait, and you want us to be free because I heard your record played <laughs> that last record in that whole experiment in what was it? In England, is it in yeah. England, yeah. In uh I think it was in Liverpool actually. Liverpool yeah. at, the, at that whole thing, and I said, 
she's coming on soon. So I'm going to ask her about that, of course. But, but <laughs> You know, I didn't know anything about it until it hit, the, it hit the social network like everyone else. I didn't even know the government was doing COVID experiment uh, parties and, you know, seeing if PCR tests would do the trick as well. Um, it was a circumstance of 3000 kids for two nights. Um, you know, at a party in Liverpool where everyone was PCR tested the day before. And of course you had to have a, a negative return on that. And, um, and they were allowed to party unmasked and in very close proximity. If you saw the, the footage, like it was 3000 people was like regular going, regular going in. Yeah. And so Yusef, the, uh, the, the main DJ of the night, uh, the, the brand is called circus and he runs, uh, he's a DJ of circus or it's his brand. Um, he started off his set, um, with a song with, it's, it's actually a song, um, some kind of play on the word free by him and Rowella, but he went from that acapella into the guitar intro, uh, introduction of free. And then just open that thing up and just put a can of whip ass on that room. <laughs> it was just hands in the air and everyone singing. And, you know, it was so, if you watch it, it was so powerful um, to see every, that's just that sea of hands and that many people together again, and just the unity and the energy. And, and it was just palpable through, even through the, 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 the computer screen. Of, of what was happening in that moment and how impactful free was as a message in that moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, girl. First question is very simple. Correspondence got to take it back to when she was a child. So how mm-hmm. does music find you as a young girl? Young. Where's it begin for you? Oh, I would say music really began at the beginning. I mean, if we're talking about just gen- a general love for music or when the music business happened. Well, let's start from how you transcend from the love of music into the business, but I'll let you tell that. Okay, well, I think my love of music and what I was doing in that in that process was really pivotal in stumbling into the music business because I used to, you know, I grew up listening to my mother's vinyl records. And she had an amazing collection of soul and funk, you know, Chaka Khan, Rufus Chaka Khan, um, Harold Melvin in the Blue Notes, um, Gene Karn, you know, uh, Regina Bell, Earth, Wind & Fire, Marvin Gaye, like the dudes, the people, the folks, the, 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 the women that just like made you cry, Diana Ross and like all of like the really good, good stuff. So. I was immersed in her vinyl and I loved the vinyl because, you know, the artwork and the liner notes and the credits and the stories. And I was taking in a lot of information, even as a kid and not realizing what I was taking in. But um, that really kind of shaped me in terms of listening deeper to music because I listened to albums in their entirety and in the context that the artist meant for them to be heard in. Um, so I got this, their stories of love and not only just their emotional context, but also their structural and um, sonic values as well. And when you're a kid, you're kind of just like a sponge. So you just kind of take in all of these elements and you don't really, you know, place value on them in a, in a specific way. They just kind of become part of the tapestry of like 
who you are and what you do and how you feel and how you think. And then, you know, counter to that, I was listening to the radio and, you know, I was I was always notorious for surfing the dial. So I would just be up and down the dial listening to everything, whether it was pop, rock, hip hop, um, country music, classical, like everything. And so I think at the point once I discovered the nightlife culture, which was after I had started my high school period. And I went to a very specific high school here in Baltimore that was geared towards the medical professions. So my intention from high school, and it was also pre, um, you know, just kind of pre-college uh, classes that you were doing also. So when I graduated, I had already started early college courses and finished them in high school and was now going into college to continue on the path of going into medicine. But I also discovered simultaneously the music at the nightclub situation because I started going to Odell's here in Baltimore. And for me, Odell's and everyone here, the legacy of Odell's was basically likened to a paradise garage. And the key DJ was, was Wayne Davis, who I didn't know personally at the time. I just knew the, the mystery and the mystique and the, the power and aura of this person, Wayne Davis, that was like the master of all ceremonies here and was, was highly you know, regarded and revered by the community. Um, and he basically was the one that set the, the template and gave us all this safe space to to hear music in an immersive way in a real sound system culture. And so the moment I walked into Odell's, that changed everything, the path that I was on, because I, I had I couldn't get enough of it. I had to be there every weekend and I had to dance and I you know was getting to know all these people in this new forum. And that's where I met Tommy Davis of the Basement Boys at that time. He was um, you know, he was a club kid, he was a dancer, he, he DJ the whole nine. But more most importantly for me, he was the one at the record store, which is where everyone went after the party was over. Everyone went to the record store at the mall and got the tracks that he was playing, you know, or that they had heard in the club not that, that he was playing at Odell's, but that it was being heard at Odell's the night previous. And so Tommy kind of was like also a master of ceremonies in that way, in that he was feeding the community the actual records. And so everybody knew him. And I got to know him that way. He knew at the time that I sang a little bit in my church. I was, you know, in the choirs kind of background thing. I wasn't like, you know, the upfront sing screaming diva of, of church either. I was just very comfortable in my supporting role because I felt like I could carry a note definitely, but I wasn't a singer by, by the way that I defined it because I had never really done that. So he just convinced me to come to the studio and just hang out, like just, just, just come anyway. He had, uh, you know, him and his friends had put together this production team. It was three of them. Um, they were working on some productions. They had just put a record out that was Love Don't Live Here No More on Jump Street at the time. And Teddy was singing the leads on that. I didn't know all this at the time, but th these are the things that I came to find out as I started to get to know them. Teddy didn't want to be a vocalist. He was way against that. And they wanted to work with writers, other writers and singers. So they were broadening their camp. And they were also like, that's when Crystal came into the picture also. Crystal had been working with them before I even met them and doing songwriting because she was coming into the camp as a songwriter. She wasn't intending on being an artist herself. And that's a whole other story over there. But, you know, so this is what they were doing was cherry picking these people in the community that they were, they were coming across 
when I went to audition for them, and I had never auditioned to sing before, but you know, I think at the time I just felt like I had nothing to lose because I was going in medicine anyway. I was, you know, I was in, starting college and I was going into medicine, and this was like the fun thing that I did on the weekend. And so, you know, I just kind of, I had this creative spirit about it, but I had more so of a sense of adventure. And I, I wasn't really scared to fail at that time, um, which is, was either like, I was just like way whatever about it or way just like, you know, let's just do it and, and see what happens. Or I, I didn't care about my feelings getting hurt or whatever. I think because I didn't have an, an aspiration to be or do anything as an artist, I didn't take it personal. But when I went to um, audition for them, there were other people there that were actual singers, self-proclaimed. And so I was like, ooh, now this is a little intimidating. I thought it was just going to be, you know, me by myself. <laughs> it was like, this is a little weird. Because, like, these are like the screaming divas of the church. You know what I mean? So I was like, ha, okay. That kind of ups the ante, but we'll see. So each one of us had to go into the booth and the booth was literally the bathroom as we were literally in the basement, in Jay's basement. And they had made part of the basement into a studio. And so we went into the vocal booth and each one of us, you know, got an opportunity to do any acapella that we wanted to do. And I did Angela Wimbush's Angel. And um, I don't know how it was. I never heard anything, you know, I never heard it back if they were recording, I don't know. But I ended up being the one that they continued to work with after that night. And so that kind of started the process. And after that, it was we would just hang out in a studio, listen to music, tracks they were working on. And they, and they built tracks like constantly. At that time, it was just basically like a four track that they were working with. And they would come up with, you know, beats and ideas. And so one of those those days, shortly after that first audition, um, they were like, OK, let's try to write a song. And so I was like, okay, let's write, let's write a song. I'd never written a song before. But, and, you know, I didn't have any particular training with that either. But as I said, I listened to this soul music growing up and, and these heavy players. And so I just drew on what they did and how they interpreted an idea, a melody, and an emotion. And I just tried to convey that when I wrote the lyrics along with Teddy and Tommy at the table, we were just kind of like, and let's write this part. And then I feel like this. And what about that? You know, and then we just kind of constructed what came to be it's over now. And it was just, you know, some scribble scrabble on a, on a piece of paper, on a blank paper. But then they were like, well, we can't walk away from the studio tonight without something to show for it. So, you know, hang on a second. And they go in the closet and grab a dat, a track I'd never heard before. And they're like, we just put this song, this track together, you know, see if you can come up with something to this. And they put the track on, throw me in the booth. And I'm like, but wait, I never even heard the song, heard the music before. Like, let me go home and play with it and like, see what I can come up with or something and come back tomorrow. But they were like, no, 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 it's not that much pressure. Like, it's not that serious. Just, just, just go in the booth and, and see if you come up with anything. And we had never done this before. So it was like the first time we had ever tried that. So I, I literally went in the booth. Did you ever get nervous before? Because I, I just want to ask you that. Did you, were you ever nervous to this or did you just like playing it off like, ah, whatever? I, I, I think I was. I'm sure I was because I'd never done any of this before. But I think I was just really kind of adventurous with it. And I, I felt like I had nothing to lose. Like, you know, when you're a kid, 
you haven't had you haven't been smacked around too many times yet so you're kind of adventurous and just kind of like free willy with it you know what i'm saying like that's just how i was i you know i had i hadn't been bumped or bruised by the business so i didn't have to worry about you know somebody saying well i don't like your voice or i don't like the way you you know you write or I don't dig this song. Like I hadn't been through that kind of thing before. So I really felt like I had nothing to lose. And so even though I'd never heard the the music before that moment that I actually heard the first beat and had to like sing something in that moment, it was very freestyle, like off the top of my head, you know, I didn't have anything to lose. Like it could come out completely horrible. And, you know, I still kind of have that energy really when I write music now, I'm like, I don't give a, like, what the fuck? (laughs) I mean, like they're either going to love it or they're not. And if they don't, whatever, I'll write something else and moving. Yeah. I mean, it's just not that it's not, you know, you can't give it that much weight or it takes away your creativity now knowing that in hindsight, but, um, no, at the time I was just like, well, let me just, you know, I heard this kind of beat and I was like, okay. Let me just bounce right here and, you know, I'm changing my hair, clothes I wear. I'm like looking at these lyrics like, what's the next thing? (laughs) What I write next? I don't know. But the whole thing was like from top to bottom, like one take of just bouncing off the top of my head. And the rest is history. And then the record starts to get played by Tony Humphrey. I remember that like crazy. Now that part I also didn't believe was really happening. I mean, I believed it was happening but I didn't, um, I didn't understand the magnitude of what that meant um, at that moment. Because at that time, I had never been to Zanzibar. I had heard about Zans. I obviously I'd heard about Paradise Garage, and then it was it had closed, and I was like, you know, what is this madness? Like people are ready to throw themselves off balconies. <laughs> like what is happening? Like it's the end of the world. <laughs> What is going on? Like everybody's like, we gotta go to New York. Like it's over. It's time. Like it was the end of the world. Because I never got to experience, experience it. So I was really kind of dejected about this. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it was kind of the same thing. Like I hadn't been to Zans, but I, I kind of knew of the the lore. You know, I'd heard about the reputation of it, and I knew of Tony Humphreys, but I didn't. I hadn't experienced it personally yet. Um, but I knew Tony was influential, but I didn't know the scope. So Tommy was the one who was always like, that's Trina. You know, if anybody knows Tommy, his energy is always way up here. So when I would go to the record store, he would be jumping and bouncing. That's Trina. You know, they call me all Trina. It's a very inside uh, nickname. It's <laughs> Trina. They're playing it so now. And they're playing it two or three times. And the kids are going up. And it's crazy. And it's crazy. It's crazy. And I'm just looking at Tommy like, what? <laughs> yeah. Okay. You don't, you don't have to do all that just to make me feel good. Like it's cool. It's a cool little ditty, like whatever, but it really was happening. And I didn't get it until we actually went to Zans for me to perform. And, um, yeah, that was an experience. I'll never forget for sure. Tell us what happened there. Come on now. Well, you know, it's just, you, you, you know, in context of that moment as like a 19 year old, 20 year old kid, um, who had never made a record before, never was considered a sing- never considered themselves a singer, never written a song before, and had never even been in the booth before. So all of these first moments produced this thing that now everyone in this club is singing from start to finish on 10, three times straight. <laughs> like, 
And I'm in the corner listening like, what are they hearing? This is crazy. Because I had never even heard my own voice. I had never heard my voice back to me, you know, in a recorded record. So I'm like listening to myself like, who is this? This is pretty wild. Like, what are they hearing that's like really connecting with them in this way? And, you know, throughout the night, like Tony would come back a couple hours later and he would bring that record back on and that room would Left, right? Explain that feeling. And nobody understands that. When a room lifts a room to be, I think, oh my God. It's like an atomic bomb. I mean, when everybody, the synergy, when everyone is in the same moment and feeling the same thing, it's magic. It's magical. And so obviously, you know, when I performed, it was, uh, it was pretty wild. Now, unfortunately on the performance side, I had cut my teeth once before that moment. And it was here in Baltimore. The very, very first time I ever performed It's Over Now was at Basement Boys Night here in Baltimore at what became Club Fantasy, which was Wayne Davis's first club that he owned himself after Odell's closed. He opened a a smaller club called Fantasy. And Fantasy was really like our playground um, for experimentation and, and playing our tracks and hearing stuff. And, and, you know, everyone in this community, they knew me because I was a club kid. And so they knew it's over now. They knew Basement Boys and Basement Boys had this Sunday night party. So my friends, you know, were the ones who kind of like got me together. My queens, my rev, my house of Revlon queens, you know, they brought me all together and like did hair and put me in this little tiny dress that I think Lyle made that night on the fly. And Neil, who was an amazing hairstylist from here, had had did my hair and like, you know, what was like the, the style of the moment, like that Allison Williams, like, you know, hard hair thing going up or doing something crazy. Like it was just all really, really epic at that time. And and then that was my first performance. But then when I went to to Jersey shortly thereafter to actually perform it with seeing it and the the reaction to it outside of my immediate underground community, that was like a whole different, different level. And meeting, you know, the uh, Warner Brothers people. The first time I met the folks from Warner that wanted to sign the record was at Zanzibar. They flew over from England to meet me at the Zanz. <laughs> that sounds like a great song, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. Who was who were the um... the ANRs? Yes. Oh, that was that was my fairy godmother, and we're still really, really good friends with sisters to this day. That was Cynthia Cherry. Cynthia was actually um, the Basin Boys A&R person when they were at Jump Street. That's right. And love don't live here no more. When Cynthia left Jump Street, because I think Jump Street folded, um, she took my demo of It's Over Now as something she wanted to sign should she get hired as A&R director with Warner UK. And she got hired and herself and Peter Edge formed Eternal Records under the WIA, which was Warner Electra Atlantic then. This is like ancient eons ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I see that look on your face, Lenny. You're like, whoo, that would hit me right there. <laughs> I can actually see the two jackets, the two different jackets. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So they formed Eternal and they they were they became my label. Eternal was the dance imprint under Warner Brothers UK. And so they flew over from the UK and I'd only had a conversation with them on the phone um, to talk about them signing me to this major label deal. 
which again, I was like, what is happening? I don't understand. Yeah, it went from like, okay, there's a deal with sleeping bag on the table, which was a very small underground imprint out of New York. Um, and I was like, oh, great. You know, somebody wants to sign this record. Like that was huge to me, even though it was a little small indie label out of New York. And then sleeping bag folded and the deal was gone. And then suddenly the situations moved in the universe and, and Cherry, we call her Cherry, Cynthia, you know, went to ended up at Warner UK and, and wanted to sign this record and, you know, signed me to a deal through Basement Boys for production as my production company. And um, yeah, it was pretty surreal. So the first time actually physically meeting her in person, her and Peter, was at the Zanzibar when they flew over. It was the same week and we coordinated for us to be at the Zans. See that? She writes a record, it's over now, no more me and you. One label closes, another label goes on. And, and that is a metaphor for life. <laughs> it's over now, no more me and you. And everybody would go to the record shop going, you have this record, goes, it's mm -hmm. over now, no more me. Tony was killing it. Listen, Tony, oh. Tony built that record so amazing. You know, all props to Tony Humphreys for that because oh he built it at Zanzibar and made it in an amazing anthem <laughs> for Zans. And he was also playing it on Kiss FM because he was a Kiss FM DJ. So, where, you know, the masses were hearing it. And he was also, his show was also airing in on Kiss FM in London. So the British kids were hearing it as well. So it was getting traction on both sides of the Atlantic before it even came out. In fact, it actually was just on a reel that only he had or a test press or something for like a year before it came out commercially. And it was still like ready to go the moment it came out like that would never happen in today's world because oh, God, it would be ruined it would be stolen you know it'd be on the internet and all over the place long before you could even like build that kind of you know uh energy around it but yeah tony was tony was uh very very pivotal to building a profile on it's over now and all of those things coming together that's why i said it's like a, it was like a perfect storm